Hey everyone, you are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Ken, where our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. your Bibles and open them back up to Genesis 32. Genesis 32, this time at the beginning of Genesis 32. And uh, I hope you were able to, as you came in, get uh, one of the sermon notes handouts. And uh, one, one thing on there, I printed those this week and then I changed the title of my sermon. So you can write this in. Instead of who are you? The title is, What is Your Name? What is your name? And I'll ask you this, and maybe some of you know, what does your name mean? Think about that. Some of you know, some of you may not know, and you can, that, that could be a fun lunch conversation today. Honestly. What does your name mean? Uh, this was actually uh, a crucial part of when my wife and I uh, had our kids. It was a crucial part of us picking their names out, uh, at least for me. <laughs> uh, my wife would come up with names that she really liked, and then I would look up the meaning, and I'd be like, no, <laughs> it's not a good idea. <laughs> but isn't it interesting how some uh, names specifically invoke, even in you, a specific joy or specific sorrow. In fact, there, is, there are people who refuse to name their children something because it reminds them of someone else. And so our name can carry a lot of emphasis. It can also carry a lot of intentionality. Ultimately, your name often reflects your character, how you interact with others, and the type of life you choose to live. In today's narrative, we're going to see all that was associated with Jacob's name, and we're going to learn how God can take our messy past and transform our identity forever. Which is where the main idea of today, at the top of your little handout there, the main idea for today is in Christ, my identity is forever changed. In Christ, my identity is forever changed. Now, last time we left off, Jacob and his family had finally left the land of Laban. His greedy, godless father-in-law. Now, Jacob, following the command of the Lord, sets off for his homeland. Now, for some of you, you may assume that a home-going would be exciting. He's going home. It's been 20 years. And he's headed home. He's got his family in tow. 
You might think, well, this is great. Home goings are exciting. This was not the case. Far from it. And this is where it's important to know the rest of the narrative prior to this. And unfortunately, a few chapters back, we're reminded of the very reason that Jacob departed. And then the concatenation of events that took place following that. Last time Jacob was home, Esau wanted to kill Jacob. Jacob, along with his mother Rebekah, deceived angels, or deceived Isaac, his father, and Esau, his brother, in order to take what God had already promised to Jacob. He took matters into his own hands. And we pick up the story now as Jacob prepares to meet his brother again for the first time in 20 years. Let's look at verse 1 through verse 8. It says, Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. Verse 4, instructing them, this is what he told the messengers, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Now, a broad question as we read through this first portion of Genesis 32. What is Jacob's primary motivator here? What do you think? Fear, right? He's afraid. This guy is terrified of his brother. And he's a little bit afraid, and so he sends some messengers in front, and the messengers come back, and they say, your brother Esau is coming, and he's bringing 400 men with him. And now Jacob is terrified. Verse 7 says he was greatly afraid and distressed. Now what's so interesting about this is... God had already promised to go with him twice. You see, when Jacob left home the first time and was on his way to the land of Laban, his now father-in-law, God met him on the way. And you remember we, that week we, we talked about God is over it all. And Jacob had this dream. At the place that he called Bethel, where God was standing above, the angels were going back and forth. And he wakes and goes, oh my goodness, God is in this place and I didn't realize it. And then as he's preparing to go back, you see in verse 1 that as he went, the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And what he names it 
is actually, you might have this in the margin of your Bible, but it means two camps. Jacob recognized God's got his people here and my people are here. There's two camps. This, this is God's place. The Lord had promised to go with him. And yet, Jacob's flesh still takes the prominent position as he fears for his life. So he divides up the two camps in order to spare one half, hopefully. So he takes matters into his own hands. Then he does something that we have not seen him do before up to this point, which you're aware of because we used it in the structure of our prayer time. Jacob said, verse 9, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. God said that. And where did he say that? It's actually back in chapter uh, uh, 31, verse 3, is where God says that to him. 31.3, then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred and what? I will be with you. So Jacob appeals to what God has said. And then he acknowledges that he's not worthy. Verse 10, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of the steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. For with only my staff... I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Acknowledges a past state of being and where the Lord has brought him to this point and acknowledges this is not of my own doing. Then his request, please, Lord, deliver me from the hand of my brother. The root of his fear is rooted in the sphere of his brother from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me. The mothers and the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for a multitude. How often in the middle of our greatest fears do we pray like Jacob does here? This short bit of text has personally challenged me this whole week. Because so often, the structure of our prayers focus a lot more on me than they do anything about the Lord. That in my greatest fears, I'm the only piece of our prayers on a consistent basis tend to be verse 11. God, deliver me. God, deliver me. Deliver me from this season. Deliver me from this grief. Deliver me from this oppression. God, deliver our country from this. Deliver me. And yet, in the midst of that, we forget two things. One, we forget what God has already said. Sometimes because we haven't cared to look. But other times because in the midst of our fear, we put our flesh and our fear in front, like a wall, in front of what God has already said. And then we we almost give, give a... An expectation, God, if you just take down this wall, then my relationship with you could be great. And God's standing there going, my, my promises remain the same, whether you build walls or not. And for us to step back and understand that if we put a wall up between, our, between us and the Lord, then that's a wall we've put up. 
because the word and the promises of God remain the same. But the second thing that we forget is I'm not worthy. I don't deserve the favor of the Lord. I don't deserve salvation. I don't deserve what God has given me in Christ. Church, we don't deserve the blessings of the Lord. And it doesn't matter how much work we feel we have done to earn anything. There is no amount of work you can do to compensate for the amount of sin that we have committed. And when we lose those two points, then our faith becomes way more about us than it becomes about God. And in that, we become idolatrous people wandering in our own direction away from the promises of God. And we should not expect any blessing from the Lord if that is the direction we are going. And at the core of this, a great diagnostic question that we could ask ourselves is, what does the content of our prayers say about the root of our faith? Is the focus of our prayer a majority of the time about us? If it is, then our faith is in us. Or is a majority of our prayer focused around who God is and what He has said? And in light of who He is and what He said, where do I stand? Because it's a glaring reality when we read the text of Scripture that if I look at those things, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of the steadfast love and all the faithfulness that God has shown to His people. Jacob, in the midst of this, we see his fear and his response in the midst of fear. We don't see an answer from the Lord when he pleads here in verses 9 through 12. And so what he does is 13. He says, so he stayed there that night and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau and he he splits up the camp. So he sends the first half of his possessions and the people ahead of him, commanding them specifically how to approach Esau. Jacob stays in the camp and ultimately is still waiting on a response from the Lord, but is going ahead and responding in fear. Okay? Boy, does he get a response. Look at verse 22. It says, The same night he arose... He took his two wives, his two female servants, his eleven children, and crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. 
for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face. And yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Now, there is a lot of questions that arise out of this text. Understandably so. And I'm just going to preface this and say there's no way in the time that we have today that I'm going to answer all of your questions about this text. Okay? But I encourage you to do your work and study this. But there are multiple specific things that we need to observe in this narrative and the significance that goes into Jacob literally wrestling with God. And you might say, how do we know he was wrestling with God? couple of reasons we see in the text that I believe that this can we can have assurance of this. Number one, he simply touches Jacob's hip and it's it's done. Okay? It wasn't that he popped his hip, he touched it. Done. Right? The first signifying factor, this is not any ordinary being. Um, secondly, it does not give Jacob his name. We can fast forward a little bit and understand what God told Moses his name was. Which is, I am who I am. He renames Jacob Israel. And there is only one deity... In all of Scripture, who has the authority to do that? He blesses him. And then, in fact, if you were to cross-reference this with Hosea 12, 1 through 3, it says, The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. Pretty clear now there's all sorts of questions that come out of this where you go well if he strove with god how how did he see god and not die which he recognizes was the mercy of god where he says i have seen god face to face and yet my life has been delivered you go how in the world did god just not squash jacob like this is over And yet there's something significantly more powerful that I think we miss when we focus so much on all of these unanswered, unrevealed things in this narrative and we miss the whole focus of what's happening here. Not only is this an astounding part of Jacob's life, but it also serves as a powerful summary of Jacob's life up to this point. Jacob wrestles. He wrestles with his own flesh. He wrestles with man. And here he wrestles with God. Jacob's life has been most literally a series of wrestlings. And as he seeks the Lord, 
this seeking turns to physical wrestling. Now understand, God absolutely could have ended this long before, and that's evidenced by the fact that he touched his hip and it was done. Jacob continues on, though, demanding a blessing, demanding the Lord's favor. And yet, in the midst of his striving with God, Jacob also recognizes that the blessing will not come through his own efforts. No matter how long he lasted, no matter how much he tried, it would have to be the Lord who brought about the blessing upon him. This bringing a very simple truth to life. Where Paul, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 says, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And there's this quote I want to read to you out of a book on Genesis by Kent Hughes. It says, paradoxically, Jacob's prevailing with God had come through his growing weakness. Everyone say weakness. As J.I. Packer explains, the nature of Jacob's prevailing with God was simply that he held on to God while God weakened him. And wrought him in the spirit of submission and self-distrust. That he had desired God's blessing so much. That he clung to God through all this painful humbling. Till he came low enough for God to raise him up. By speaking peace to him. And assuring him that he need not fear. Some of you are in deep wrestlings with the Lord. But you are still convinced that you will be the one to bring blessing upon yourself. You are feeling weak, but you still have not trusted the Lord. You still have not surrendered yourself to the Lord. In your wrestlings, who is your confidence in? What do you cling to? Some of you think you're wrestling with God, but you're really clinging to your own flesh. And you're wrestling with yourself. Some of you are wrestling with earthly matters. And you've convinced yourself that if I wrestle with this long enough, it, will, it whatever it is, will bring about blessing and abundance in my life. Do you depend on your own ability or the sovereignty of God? Here's the truth in this. He is the only one who can take the mess of your past and give you a new identity forever. He is the only one. Morning comes. Jacob continues his journey along with a newfound limp. And behold, he sees Esau coming with 400 men. This is in verse 1 of chapter 33. Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. 
This was it. He would prayed. He would wrestled with God. This was the moment of truth, wasn't it? Was his brother approaching him in pent-up anger? Would these moments be the final moments of Jacob's life? What would come of his family? In all of this, we reflect back and see that, Jacob's, that Jacob owns his own shortcomings. He knows what he has done, and this is what is at the root of his fear, ultimately. He knows what he deserves. Time will only tell what comes next. And here's what happens. Mercy comes running to him. Verse 2. He put the servants with their children in front. Then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So we could just picture this, right? As they're approaching and the closer he gets, the more he, he bows himself down to the ground. Seven times. And he comes, he walks a little further. He over and over and over. Riddled with fear. Unknown. What's, what's going to happen? What will be his response? And this picture is so powerful. Verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him. And fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? And Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. And Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? And Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because... God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Jacob's statement here, For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me, is significant. Why? Why wouldn't have Esau accepted him? In all reality, Esau had every reason not to accept Jacob. He had swindled him out of his birthright, his father's blessing, his mother's favor, and had disappeared for 20 years. Jacob had a right to be afraid, and Esau had a right to be angry. Yet, mercy is the response. Family, we would be wise to see much of Jacob's story in our own lives. 
We're prone to consistently take matters into our own hands, seeking to connive and conjure up any way we can to bring about our own success. Trust in the Lord is not our default response, is it? Everyone say no. (laughs) It's rather often our last resort. When we consider standing before a holy God, which stands honestly in stark contrast to the hairy outdoors man Esau, we have every reason to be afraid of how he, God the Father, will respond to us. Because here's the thing, we do not deserve his mercy. We do not deserve His favor. And yet, in Christ, mercy has come. Now, to kind of close this section out, I actually want to go back to a piece of chapter 32, verse 27. That is really powerful when we consider Jacob's story. When Jacob is wrestling with God, and God Himself asks, What is your name? It says He responded, Jacob. We would be wise to ask the question, Why would God ask him that question? And yet, if we think about this, actually what Scripture records, when was the last time someone asked him what his name was? It was his father. Who asked him, who are you? What is your name? And what was his response? I'm Esau. And now, here, when God asks him, Jacob, what what is your name? He says, Jacob. And it's after this that he says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with man and with God and have prevailed. God renames Jacob here. And this, for some of you, completes the tie of realizing, oh, Israel, the twelve tribes of Israel, the twelve sons of Israel, who is Jacob. That's how this all ties together. But even more specifically, recognize this. When Jacob responds to the Lord that his name is Jacob, what is attached to that? Everything from the past. All the deception. All the lies. All the baggage. All the fear. And in this moment of wrestling with God, he renames him. For you today, I ask you once again, what is your name? You see, every one of us has a story. And the name we were given at birth ultimately is tied to who we are today. But more importantly, it's tied to who we have been in the past. 
And so as we think about how do I apply these truths and we see Jacob and his wrestlings and his fear and we can resonate with that and we can feel uh, empathy and I've been there, I know what that's like and we see mercy and some of you are going, oh, I would love to have that kind of ending to the season I'm in right now. But how does this apply broadly to our relationship with the Lord? And I just want to make this really simple. The first thing, our fleshly desires have a name. Sin. Everyone say sin. And we talked about this in our Tolerable Sin series where sin is a bullseye that matches the holiness of God. And if I miss the mark of that at all then I am, by nature, a sinner. My fleshly desires have a name. When I struggle in my flesh, I need to call that what it is. It's sin. Some of us have gotten really good at justifying our fleshly desires. And in so doing, have lost sight of the holiness of God. Because one of the most common ways we justify our fleshly desires is we look at another person that appears to be worse off than me. Oh, I'm a lot better than that. (laughs) Wrong. (laughs) Wrong standard. The standard is the holiness of God. So we have to start and recognize that our fleshly desires have a name. Sin. Let's call it what it is. Ephesians 2 says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked. He writes in the past tense there because he's talking to the church. There's a second piece to this, though. Our hope has a name. His name is Jesus. Ephesians 2 says, or, Roman, or Ephesians 2 further says, you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it's a gift of God in Christ Jesus. And it's not of works, so that none of you can boast and say, I've done this, I've got this. It's a gift, and it's a gift you don't deserve. It's a gift none of us deserve. God has every right to give us what we are deserving of, which according to Scripture is death, not life. This flies in the face of those individuals in our world and culture today who would say, devote yourself to the Lord and He's going to bless you abundantly on this earth. You you may never experience that. But that's not the point because everything on this earth is going to be gone. It's going to pass away. It's going to die. It's going to be taken from you. And if that's what you're clinging to, you are clinging to a rotting piece of the world. It's going to go away. Jesus remains. If your faith is not rooted in Christ, you are not saved. If your faith is rooted in anything other than Jesus' name above all names, you are not saved. 
But there is hope. Because you are still here. And your hope's name is Jesus. Will you cling to him? Or will you continue to cling to yourself? For those who have said, I cling to Christ, I surrender to Jesus, my new identity has a name. Child of God. And it's a name that no one can ever take from you. Not even death. How can you say that? How, how can you say that? Because Jesus was victorious over the grave. Amen? <laughs> and if Christ is resurrected, then our hope is alive. It's not a dead hope. But some of you are still living in a dead hope. Some of you are still living as if you can do this yourself. You cannot. If you are still trying to do this your own way, there is a chance that you are not saved. Church family, there is only one way your adoption paperwork for eternity gets signed. And it's by Christ. And when you believe in the name of Jesus to be saved and the Spirit of God comes into your life, it is the seal on your adoption paperwork. And from that point forward, we await our Heavenly Father to return for us. I exhort you, family, to ask yourself, what is my name? Can I with confidence declare that I am a child of God? And if the answer is, I don't know, then that is your singular focus right now. Because Christ is the only way. When we choose not to walk in light of our eternal identity, we bring distraction and destruction upon ourselves and those closest to us. And what you're going to see in the weeks ahead is a lot of mess still. <laughs> and so I stand here today not to give you a solution for the mess in your life. Because the reality is as long as we're in the flesh, we're going to struggle with the flesh. But what I bring to you is an opportunity to not live for the flesh, but to live for that which is eternal. And at the end of our life, nothing that you accomplish in your flesh will matter. Christ will remain. If Christ is not a part of your life, there is nothing good in store for your eternity. And we have reason to fear. But just like Esau came running to meet his brother and embraced him with open arms, 
God has sent his son, Jesus, to take the penalty on our behalf with open arms that we might become the righteousness of God. Church family, what is your name? I'm going to ask the worship team to come and we're going to sing in closing today this song. Who he says, who you say I am. And to be reminded who God says we are in Christ. Let's stand together. Father, as we consider these truths, I pray that we would take them seriously as we consider the weight of this matter in light of eternity and in light of no promise of tomorrow. Father, bring us to a place of surrender that we would choose to follow Jesus. Renew in us, Lord, a healthy fear of You that we would not continue to try to do this of our own strength and power and ability, but that we would trust You and commit this to You and live in obedience to You. Lord, unify us under this, that we would be a church who is devoted to Your ways for Your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.